Welcome to Writers Talking, the podcast where we take writers and readers behind the scenes, sharing the stories within the stories. No scripts, no filters, and no holds barred as we talk about what really happens for writers as they write, edit, publish, and promote their work. Hi, I'm Anjanette Fennell, agent, editor, and writerly mentor who's worked with hundreds of writers to break through their creative challenges to uncover the stories they feel compelled to share. Now, let's get talking. Monique Mulligan is an author, interviewer, and founder of the Stories on Stage and Prose and Convos programs in Perth. A former journalist, news editor, and publisher, she combines part-time work at an art center with freelance editing and novel writing. Her debut novel, Wherever You Go, was published in September 2020, and her second novel, Wildflower, in March 2022. She is currently working on her third novel. Monique has had essays and short stories published in several anthologies, most recently Reflections on Our Relationships with Anne of Green Gables, Kindred Spirits, published by Cambridge Scholars Publishing, and South of the Sun, Australian Fairy Tales for the 21st Century. When she's not working, you will usually find Monique A. Writing, B. Reading, C. Cooking, and D. Taking photos for her cat's Instagram page. When she's socializing, she's usually behind a camera or in a corner hanging out with the other introverts and making mental notes for stories. When she was 50 years old, many, many years ago, it occurred to Denise Picton to ask her mother where her name came from. Her mother claimed she went to the movies when she was pregnant in 1956, and on the newsreel preceding the film, she watched a live athletic European shot putter called Denise practice for the Olympics and knew it was a sign about what she should name her baby. When Denise could find no evidence of a shot putter with that name in the Olympic records, it occurred to her that she might have inherited storytelling tendencies from her mother. Denise wrote when she was a child and had poetry and short fiction published in her teens and twenties. Following a career in human services management, Denise established her own consulting company that sopped up most of her energy for several decades. A few years ago, it occurred to her that if she didn't write a novel soon, she may need an aged care support person to hold the pen for her when she finally got around to it. She decided to write a novel every year until someone darn well published one of them. Because she worked full-time in long days, she began the routine of reading on Saturdays and writing on Sundays. Six novels later, Ultimo Press read one of her books and offer her a book deal. Denise considered writing under a pseudonym, but decided this would deny the legacy of the famous European shot putter. The Family String is her debut novel. Her second novel, The Knighton Family Compendium, will be published by Ultimo Press in January 2023. So thank you both so much. We've got Denise Picton here and Monique Mulligan. For the first time, we're actually only having three of us, and I say only. <laughs> It may still be a challenge, but hopefully as we're having conversation, listeners will be able to tell who is talking. But I'm super excited to talk to both of you, specifically because on a previous episode of Writers Talking, we're really chatting about, especially for female writers, discussing darker or challenging or taboo topics and doing it using fiction as a way to make that connection that most writers are looking to make. And the reason the pair of you were so appealing was because each of you has done that in totally different ways, of course, but you've got dynamics with adults and children while unraveling 
some of the more challenging things that go on in life. I would love to hear about where you got your initial idea for your most recent book. So for you, Denise, it's The Family String. And for you, Monique, it's Wildflower. Where the idea germinated from and maybe a little bit about how long it took you to start that process, knowing that there would be maybe some challenging themes that you're addressing in the book. That's such a that's such a good question. I'll go first. I'm money. Okay. <laughs> uh, I started Wildflower back in about 2017, I think, uh, maybe 2016, and it began as a short story that I wanted to enter into a competition. So it was never intended to be a novel. It mm. was intended to be this short story that explored a friendship between two young girls in which there was a, a secret that one of the girls was, was holding back and the other one wanted to know about because she could see something bad was happening in this house next door. And I don't know what made me think that I could cover this entire thing in 3,000 words, but I tried. <laughs> and. I ended up sending that in and I didn't get long listed for that competition. And afterwards, I sought feedback from the judge because I really wanted to know, first of all, how to write better and how yeah. to craft short stories better, what, what I could have done to, to get past the gatekeepers in that situation. So I was very much in that learning process. And he gave me some fantastic feedback. First of all, said the characters were wonderful and the setting was wonderful and the ideas were great but I'd covered too much and I needed mm. to, to go deeper and to, to be a little more descriptive with some of the language I was using in that story. So at the end of this assessment, he said, I think this has the, the potential to become a novel. And yeah. I thought, oh, never thought of that before. <laughs> and <laughs> ended up putting it aside for a while because I was working on another book and then later came back to it and that process started. Wow. Okay. Look, mm. I will just raise my hand and say, I'm biased toward full-length novels, primarily because of the feedback that you got that I often feel, and this is always, for me, the challenge, not just reading the short stories, but supporting writers through the writing of them. I always think the difference between a short story and a novel is you stay with the same story longer and you go deeper, mm -hmm. right? You get to fully surrender to it, but it's a challenge, which is why mm -hmm. probably at your first go at it, you're like, oh, I can do, I can commit to 3,000 words. Mm -hmm. But what you noticed, especially through his feedback was, but it sounds like you had an inkling beforehand as well that you wanted to spend the time with it. But if we're allotted this many words, we just mm -hmm. kind of stop or we stay a little bit surface level, but also mm -hmm. the themes and we'll get more into it as we're chatting, but the themes almost require you to stay there. But internally, that would be deeply uncomfortable, even if it's not your story, yeah, yeah. you're part of it, right? What about you, Denise? Where did the family string start? How long did it take you to go from idea to maybe first draft? Uh, well, the family string was the second book that I wrote. First one okay. hasn't been published. And I'm 66. And one of the things that influenced me in writing that was I was thinking about what I remembered of my own childhood, which, you know, increasingly is a long time ago. <laughs> Don't remind me. <laughs> For myself too, I'm like, ah, 
<laughs> and I was just thinking one day that I didn't really have much of a record of growing up in the 50s and 60s. We didn't have many photos. And I just started thinking about what I could remember from being a kid. And in thinking about that, I thought, well, that it would be fun to write something about that age because it'll almost be the book equivalent of a photo album I don't have. And I grew up in the Christadelphian church and I thought, well, much as I've had nothing to do with that church for decades, that was a very different experience from a lot of the families and the kids around me. And then because I've written a number of novels now, I've only got one published and another one coming out soon. But what tends to happen to me is then some characters just turn up. And so Dorcas, who just about 12, just sort of turned up, fully formed, stood in front of me, arms folded and said, right, you know, we're on. And so it was really just the combination of thinking about what I could remember, particularly growing up in the 60s. And then the kid turned up and that's sort of where it started. That's amazing. But I think, number one, there is magic in the writing. And what you just described is something that lots of people describe too. I was listening to another interview with a writer who was saying she was very productive in her procrastination because she had multiple projects. But generally, she would go to this other project when the characters stop talking to her or they weren't doing what she thought they should do because they're like, sorry, that's not actually us. So there is that magic part. But I also think about you opening the door, right? So not saying I must be locked into CCTV sort of memories in my mind, more of a, a Joan Didion, your truth is all you've got and how you remember it is what matters. But you open that door, which sort of gives space for a character. Now, were you 12 about the time period that you're setting in? Yeah. Uh, yeah okay. See, yeah. so that makes sense. It was this, we won't call Dorcas imaginary, but this friend you could have had, right? Sort of the setting is where yeah. you were. Yeah. And... She's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot more interesting than I ever was as a kid. <laughs> Uh, well, feisty, so, maybe uh, the feisty the setting. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. But the power too. So maybe that just gives us that jumping off point. What were the ages of the younger protagonists or characters in your book, Monique? Mine were, were 10 going on 11. Yeah. And they, yeah, they were probably a little bit older than I would have been. So like you, Denise, I set mine in that time period where I was growing up and even in the place that I grew up so very much resonated with what you said because I did go back to my childhood as well and I did feel in a way like I was recapturing moments from that time and kind of putting them on paper even if they weren't all my moments yeah and a lot of the feedback has been from people more my vintage who've said oh I remember yeah. when suddenly you could get colored phones and we all had avocado telephones <laughs> and I can remember cooch lawns and I can remember hills clotheslines in the middle of the backyard and I can so it was so in a way I have created a little album for myself of the memories I did remember from yeah. that time even though the story is not autobiographical it was fun to do that and I've really valued the fact I've got that now mm, it's beautiful and again giving yourself that space to not be hypercritical of was it this was it that was it exactly this month of the year was it exactly this year it's more impressions and to be honest even from a 
psychological perspective, when you think about memory, and this is why eyewitnesses are so unreliable, it's impressions, which is really about the emotion, right? So in both of your stories too, you've got these younger characters and yours, Monique, you've got two. And so one is trying to draw things out. And I understand yours is dual timeline. You've got these two characters and one wants to pull stuff out and the other is shutting down. But both of you have dealt with in yours, Denise, it sounds more like maybe because of the religious construct around it that we're hiding things. So it's really about exploring things from a child's perspective, right? And talking it, it's sort of the mystery part of it, right? Well, I think the age, and it sounds as though we've got our characters are sounding as though they're only about a year or so apart. Yeah. What was fabulous about writing from that age group is it's you're at the point of time at that age, at the age of about 12, where it's as though you can peek through the window into the adult world, but they haven't given you the keys yet. Yeah. And so you can see a whole lot of stuff going on. But uh, so what you have to do is just make up your own story about what it all means. And so there's both a wonderful kind of truthfulness in the way kids will talk about what they can see that I think you very quickly lose as you go into your teens and young adulthood. And I really enjoyed the challenge of saying, no, what would that just look like? And what would you just hear at that age? And how would you turn that into a story? Right. And especially if you weren't looking back at any particular memories, or did you do that? So again, we're talking about filling in a sort of photo album for yourself, but everything has got to be based on a truth. So you just expressed it beautifully, Denise. And I always say the devil isn't in the details. The magic, at least in writing, is in the details because it didn't have to happen this way. But when I'm reading other people's work, it's when they bring in those bits of their truth, something they felt or touched or smelled. And then the rest of the story can be different. But as long as that detail is there, the entire scene can ring true because there is a truth there. It's interesting that you say that because my poor old publisher, (laughs) uh, I gave her a number of novels to consider. And it was interesting to me that it was this one. I'd written seven by the time I found her. And I I was really interested. It was the second one she chose. Mm. And the second one had much more of a connection to my lived experience. And Mm. so I thought that was really interesting that the one that she immediately went, no, this is the one. Clearly it rang true to her, even though it was nothing to do with her own experience. So I, I thought, well, that's really fascinating because much as all of them are largely things I've constructed, that one was the closest to a lived truth. I love it. Mm. Amazing. What about you, Monique, with your experience of writing it or even the conversations you've had with people, even with your first book too, what was that balance between sharing things that that was not yours, but you gave it to Mm. a character? Yeah, I think the first book is so different. So probably it's not the same conversation, (laughs) Um, but they are lived experience and and they definitely drew from a a lot of myself, you know, my love of cooking and my desire to live in a smaller country town and sort of through all of those things I wanted at a particular time into that. Whereas Wildflower is so much more about my lived experience as a young child growing up in the 70s in Western Sydney. And so again, like I, it wasn't my story. What happened to the children in this story didn't happen to me, but there are elements that that happened to me. And there are elements that very strongly resonate with me that I can draw from my own feelings and 
knowing. And I just found that whole process, I guess, of connecting with that to be such a beautiful and yes, a magical thing for me to do, you know, just to to be able to say this, this is what life was like for people living in my part of Western Sydney. Even if it's through the kind of rose-coloured glasses of a 10, nearly 11-year-old girl. Well, look, I think we often do that. It's just so interesting to talk about this too, because I don't know if either of you like reading memoir and there are certain people who love it or don't like it, but I've coached that many people through it. And I always go with a very loose sort of thing, finding your best way forward. Sometimes the only way to unravel something is actually through fiction, right? We feel too close to it and or we get these hurdles of I can't say that it wasn't true. So sometimes it's perfect for memoir, but you've brought these aspects in And I also think nostalgia is what both of you are expressing and giving yourself permission to explore it, not just even, but I love that you said rose colored glasses, because honestly, we're going to remember it how we, you could have also done even deeper, darker glasses, right? You take one aspect Mm -hmm. of a story and it can take a left turn. And now you get to hold on to that. You've put it down there. So even that process of going from starting to finishing, I always say is really transformative for the writer, even if it's just a releasing a maybe not a burden, but just a want. Denise, you were saying you couldn't, you didn't have a photo album of any particular time necessarily. So here it is in word pictures, as opposed to photographs, which by the way, I rarely look back at. It's a real, <laughs> it's a travesty. Even before I've got a box one day, maybe somebody will look at them but they're all hodgepodge we just don't do what we used to do which is those Mm -hmm. old books I don't know if you had them and my mom did and now we take photos of the photos so we can send them off to (laughs) to other people (laughs) and they have that sepia tone but what a beautiful reminder that you don't have to do it strictly this way you are still writing a bit of you in the story that is not yours. I think it's interesting that both of us uh, obviously have used kids in different ways to explore some things that are quite dark. And what I found really, really interesting is the incredible range of responses to the same story. I just think that's so fascinating. So I had people contact me who said, this is just too dark. This story is too dark. And I felt really quite distressed, you know, at the end of it. I had other people who said, oh, that was lovely the way that all sort you know sorted itself out in the end whereas I don't think it did sort itself out in the end so I just found how people responded to the darkness in the story Mm -hmm. so differently was really fascinating I put it tried to put a lot of humor uh, in mine as well so that there was a kind of counterbalance to some of the darkness of the story and uh, to make it palatable and quite a few people said if there hadn't been some humor in it they don't think they could have read the story but the difference in people's reactions particularly to the end everything from please you have to write the next chapter because I need to know what happens through to oh that was lovely I found that (laughs) quite fascinating the different responses did you find the same thing with wildflower that you've had different responses to the darker bits yeah absolutely I had so many messages and conversations with people about wildflower and the nostalgic element really does appeal to a lot of people they just love to talk about it oh I remember when this happened oh that took me right back to my childhood even when I read the family strings and these I felt that with yours and I felt such a strong connection between our two books there you know there's a lot that I'm like oh I wrote about that in my book (laughs) I love that 
But and then I've had people who said they were reading and then they'd have to put it down and they'd have to stop reading and then they'd come back to it. But then they got to a certain point and they had to know what happened. And I had somebody who messaged me when she finished and swore at me because without saying what happens at the end because of the ending and but not in a bad she was just couldn't couldn't believe it another one messaged me very very concerned to see if I was okay (laughs) are you okay was this you did this happen to you oh wow oh my god (laughs) and so I've had such a, a wonderful and varied response it's really made a story that was so difficult in many ways to write it's made it worth that pain I think of of you know, looking at something that is so dark. And also like like you, Denise, I used humour in that story as well. I think nostalgia really helps with the lightness as well. So it yeah. kind of tempers that dark that you know is coming, you know, that you might be foreshadowing even at the same time as the light, uh, as yeah. the dark. And the light's all happening there with that humour and with that little memory of a song that maybe you danced to once back in the 70s yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And even, you know, the interaction interactions between the two the two girls and this mad dog that they have that's in the family you know called turtle you know so yeah so the whole family interactions I think add to humor and sort of adds that layer and then underneath you have this simmering darkness that's there I love that for both of you and it may it did make me think and I'd love to hear your responses I know you said a little bit unexpected so I've got a follow-up question to that but do you not think that maybe that's reflective socially too in Australia there is that larrikin it's a different way of making light or getting past hard things not quite a stiff upper lip or sweep it all under the rug there's a humorous way that especially in Australia I've noticed that people do and I'm very appreciative of it but also maybe like a sarcastic humor as well I don't know as that you would have that that much in the Christadelphians (laughs) I can't see that happening but certainly the Australians are round and again children adding to it because of course they're exploring their independence as little humans that are growing up and understanding more and yet as you said Denise looking in through the window so not quite there so having to fill out the rest of the story for themselves in whatever way they can but is is society now much different to that in terms of do we still use the lightness to help us get through some of the darkness I mean were you intentionally you said you put those things in Denise I'm sure you did as well Monique did you go back in an edit say and like ah this part's really dark I better bump up over here or was it just part of as you were writing and the dialogue came out and the lightness was there interwoven with dark I was just in my case it just once I've got a little cast of characters I just Mm -hmm. feel as though they write the book and that was just natural to them and everything I've written since has had similar elements just because I think the world is completely ridiculous (laughs) and and if you can't see the ridiculous in just about everything I've despair for you and it's often in the humor that you find the real truth of the situation and so no in my case it just there are three kids in the family and what they got got up to is just what kids get up to and the Christophian church 
it's interesting you raised that. It's, it was quite a solemn, that their processes are quite solemn, serious processes. But as kids, you have every range of kid in every church group as you yeah. have anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So as kids, you know, we put chewing gum on the chair so that when they sat down after the hymn, you know, we knew they'd get stuck to the chair. We did, we just did all the things that kids do everywhere. It's just that it happened to be sometimes in a church environment. And so, um, uh, and it's, in fact, sometimes the solemnity gave me great ideas about where the humour might be. Oh, I love that. Well, and they do talk about that too in comedy, that it is balancing the light and the dark. And that's part mm-hmm. of what makes a great joke. Mm-hmm. And we're also talking about those kernels of truth and the truth may feel dark. And what do you do to it? It builds tension, essentially, mm-hmm. and then breaks the tension with a laugh. Maybe yeah solving the problem but maybe not what about you Monique were the characters just talking through you did you finesse it as you went through because again very definitely very dark themes in Wildflower yeah, definitely I think in the same way that Denise said her characters are fully formed I would say mine did as well especially Acacia who is the friend in the story and she doesn't have her own so the she doesn't have her own voice in this story. Her story is told through Jane's eyes. And Jane came to me quite well formed. You know, I, I just knew what this little girl was like and what kind of child she'll be like and how she might react to situations. What I had to do with her was to pull back a little bit on some of her innocent ponderings. It was almost like I went a little bit too far and I had to pull her back a little bit. So just to not dilute the, the darkness, I guess you know there are times when it just needed that little bit of tweaking there with acacia of course she came through as that formed character quite a strong and feisty young girl and able to to use her to just make these observations that would sometimes stun her friend with you know how did she know how did she see that or how can she read that into people I don't understand how her mind works and so humor came through quite naturally I tend to be that kind of person who'll be self-depreciating you know I used to write a column for a newspaper about all the silly things that happened to me as a mother and you know it was my way of kind of almost venting and just going oh my gosh like I wore white clothes today and (laughs) you know the kids spilled coffee all over me or I spilled coffee all over me and so I tend to naturally go that way so I think it weaves into my writing anyway I don't I don't feel like I have to try hard to do that part I think look again for me as an outsider I'm very appreciative that I see that in a lot of Australian writing especially female writers and it doesn't seem to be holding anything back it's just obviously I resonate with it and being able to see yourselves but it's definitely an aspect that maybe you don't get in every other culture that response you got Monique from the friend who swore at you at first I was going to say well welcome to (laughs) Jody Pico land who like I would have sworn but what I had thought to ask before was yes surprised and we know that the way that people respond to our writing is subjective Mm. but even when we know our expectation only is here what were you expecting what was part of it and again you were surprised did certain people surprise you you thought they'd respond this way or that way what was it that you thought they would respond like oh they would think it's xyz when you put out a book like this well my husband uh, won't read anything I write (laughs) uh, and so 
because he said it might be terrible and then he'd be embarrassed and he wouldn't know what to say to me. So I didn't have to worry about any of his reactions. What he does is he collects other people's comments like a little bowerbird and then talks very knowledgeably about the book, never having read it because he just pinches other people's editorials on it. So I didn't have to worry about him. The the other thing I found interesting, and you you might find the same, the number of people close to me who were pretty sure the characters were them and they weren't. They were not. They were, it wasn't my mother, it wasn't my mother-in-law, it wasn't my sisters, it wasn't my friends. But they would go, oh, you know, I know who, we both know who that was. I go, no, not really. I made that up. And sometimes both my mother and my mother-in-law sent me notes with page numbers and saying, oh, no, paragraph two, look at that. We both know, you know, that that's, and I go, yeah, no, it wasn't. So I thought that was interesting. I have a, a, I'm a management consultant in the other part of my life. And my clients were surprised that I was writing fiction, not a management text. You know, I'd rather drink a cold bucket of sick than write a management. <laughs> Honestly. And so the reactions from them that I wrote a story about a family and kids was really interesting. They weren't expecting uh, that. So like who you are to them is what they expect of you. So to yeah. them, you're a management consultant. This is how she thinks. This is how she talks. Yeah. This is the depth and breadth of who she is. Isn't it interesting? Like when you're a kid in school and then you accidentally see a teacher outside of school. I remember this experience of like, I don't even know what to do right now. My worlds are colliding. They're in their normal clothes. I mean, they didn't even wear uniforms. I'm not sure what I was expecting, but it was very, very off-putting for me. What about, what about you, Monique? What were you thinking people would think that was surprising that they did this range of sort of responses? I think what, in regards to what Denise said about her husband, my husband does read my books and I'm really fortunate because he has really sat with me and listened to me moan and whinge and cry and laugh. He's seen me gesturing at the screen and laughing at my own funniness and all of that and then reads the book as well. So I have been really lucky in that because I've had some really good feedback from him on that. And I remember when I wrote the second timeline into this book and I said, oh, I think this is what I'm going to do. And he said, oh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if that will work. I went, no, this is what I'm going to do. And I, and it did work, you know. Yeah. So I trusted the gut with that one because he's not a writer and so he wasn't quite sure where I was going. But in terms of that, it's been great to have that kind of feedback and support. In terms of others, I was mostly worried that well, two things really. One, that people would think the same as Denise, that this was that this was me, this was fully my story and that everything that happened in this story was me and would then want to talk to me about that and that really got me quite worked up and, and anxious when the book mm. first came out because I just thought, oh, I don't want to talk about all of, of this stuff. And then the other thing was I was worried that people might think I hadn't dealt with such a difficult subject of domestic violence in a sensitive or in a deep enough way. So you think that you've done it, you think you've, you've covered it and the feedback you've had from the publisher and from other people has been such that you have, but then once you get it out to the readers, it's very, very different because they're all coming with such different experiences that they might say no that's nothing like what might happen no you don't have any understanding and we all know goodreads reviewers can be really nasty (laughs) but that's why you don't go there 
Don't go there. Yeah, that's right. We won't go there. But I was worried that maybe people would say, oh, nice try, but not quite good enough. Mm. And so it was my own self-doubt that was really at the launch of the book that was really playing a big part in what I thought people might say about it. When they came back with these other kinds of reactions, I was just floored by it really. Just you think, is this real? They're talking to me. Do they really mean it? Are they just being nice? And even last night I was at a book club and they all sat around and it was their book club. I was the guest. And they told me how much they loved my book. And I can't tell you how how nice, but also how embarrassing and awkward that was at the same time. <laughs> like, I don't want to be here while you're saying it. That's yeah. beautiful. Mm. I think this is a process that I think we have to work through everywhere. We did have, I had a great conversation with Victoria Perman about it and writers and confidence. And we can have confidence in one section of our writing, or we have confidence only up to this level <laughs> with this part of the writing. But truly, when you do give your book out, I'm not ever going to invalidate somebody being worried about how the response will come back because you can be worried about it, but Mm -hmm. it's a little bit wasted because you don't have control over it anyway, right? Ultimately, you had enough good feedback to say this is worth putting out there. This is real enough. And to be honest, I think what we all know as well, even if you lived, I don't know, do either of you have siblings? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So if you were in a room with a sibling and thinking about a memory, it's I've had this experience, you could literally be skin to skin, arm to arm, have an experience, and then you remember it as if it was toward you, like this happened to me, but it wasn't you. And they will argue voraciously that it was them that that this happened to. That's how we work. And Mm -hmm. so the way that we store things and then move forward with them is so unique. So even if you are bringing up a really dreadful and difficult, dark, taboo topic, there isn't one way of experiencing domestic violence or any other sort of harm or there is like you were saying Denise it's funny that there's a universality to some of the things that kids get up to right I would say probably wholesale crosses societies and different cultures and all of that cheekiness and certainly it's down to personality so you would have known some kids that were cheekier than you or riskier and then vice versa so what what we would be looking for too is that universal truth you're getting it with some of the details those nostalgic details but once you put like you said that vulnerable piece you put your work out there and definitely if you're doing it as a reader go to goodreads (laughs) If you're not doing it as a reader, don't go to Goodreads. It's just not worth it. Mm -hmm. Or just get somebody like Denise, your husband, let a Bowerberg go pick the good ones and Mm -hmm. then they can feed it to you, right? Get a filter for yourself because that's something you have no control over. And as Mm -hmm. you've experienced too, drastically, the filter is them, their own upbringing. So some people, Denise, you were saying this and even you as well, Monique, whether somebody needed an extra chapter Mm -hmm. or another story with all the same characters or some people are like oh you tied that up nicely and you're thinking did you really read the same book I mean <laughs> can you have that same response because it's got to come through them and then based on what they think feel know at the end of that book well that's... I think it's uh, you know I've just learned quickly and I'm very comfortable with it but once it goes out into the world it's not yours anymore yeah. it's the readers and whatever the reader does with it's the reader rewrites your book um, yes. against their thinking in their yeah. life. Yeah. And I'm 
quite cool about that. And same as I've had people apologise if they've not read the book, you know, Friends or whatever. And I've said, no, don't apologise because no book is good for everybody. And if you already know this is probably going to be a story you enjoy reading, honestly, I won't be offended. Don't read it. Mm. So I'm quite, uh, I'm both fascinated and quite comfortable. But as soon as it leaves me and it goes to the editor and it's finally signed off, it, it it's not mine story anymore in lots of ways mm. and in fact I think it's wonderful to listen to people who do rewrite it for themselves even if they're critical about things the fact is they've engaged with it now that's and I think yeah. that's fantastic yeah I, I like how you put that Denise because I think logically that's where I want to be mm. is that really calm like this book belongs to the reader because I completely agree with you the book belongs to the reader once I put it out there and I have no control about whether they like it or hate it or anything I would say 90% of the time I'm cool about that and then there's 10% of the time where I'm wrong. <laughs> and that's okay because I think I need to feel those feelings if I'm feeling that way I, I have just learned about myself that I acknowledge it and that today I'm feeling vulnerable about this and I'm feeling a bit anxious and maybe it's not about that or maybe it is and if I just say this is how I'm feeling today about it and accept it then I can grow through it rather than trying to just push it down and say no that's stupid you shouldn't feel like that logic logic I just sort of let myself feel it I think mostly I'm I'm getting much more relaxed about it I, I found more challenge actually in the editing process I love being edited mm. I find it really exciting to open it and see <laughs> but I have a I always have a little period where I go oh no this is terrible I can't do this this is too hard yeah. and then once I get over that I really really enjoy it mm. but what I've found fascinating is I've realized that writing at the age I am now I'm often dealing with people who are significantly younger than I am in the industry and the only time I found myself getting sometimes a bit, oh, cross is too big a word for it, but a bit miffed is when people challenge my lived experience. Mm. Uh, and I've often I have a little things that like oh, on a short story that was edited and published, I had an editor come, came back to say, this doesn't make any sound, sense. This says the mother put on her best frock and her best handbag to go to town. What does that even mean? That No, people don't do that. And I'd go, oh, no, 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 no. When I was growing up, you don't. You got dressed up to go to town. And in fact, when I was a kid, your mum still often wore a hat to go to town. So oh. I found that the challenge has often been to explain to people a generation or even two generations before mm -hmm. me. In one of the books that was considered, the feedback that I had was there was a, a man who since died in the book, but he was gay and he had married a woman uh, because that's what you did when I was a kid. You know, lot, there were lots of people who did make that decision. And they said, but that would never happen. And I go, no, no, it, it can't <laughs> say it would never happen. It did happen. <laughs> Do you want to ring some of my friends who tell me yeah. about the decisions they made? I said, for example, men would sometimes marry a woman because they wouldn't get on in their profession if they weren't seen to have a wife and family. Mm -hmm. And so there were women who accepted that and men who accepted that decision. And one of them, I had, she said, well, I just don't think that that would ever happen and I had to remind her yeah. that it wasn't until the 70s that it wasn't unlawful actually yes. to be gay and so of course these things were hidden of course they weren't made public mm. so I found that really really interesting as an older writer to work out but what the learning for me has been but I am writing for readers now and oh. so it's as much a challenge for me to work out what matters to stand up and say no I'm sorry this is a feature in the book and where do I have to go 
Denise, you're looking at things through 66-year-old eyes and who are your readers going to be and what's going to work for them? Will this get in the way of them staying engaged with the story? And if it might, do you want to die in a ditch over this? So it's been a really good learning thing for me. Mm-hmm. But it's been those, it's not so much been readers once it's got out there. Some of those challenges have been more in the editing process. I've learned a great deal about that. That's <laughs> amazing. And I'm in my late, the latest 40s you can be in. <laughs> and I know of the time of which you speak, even if my mum didn't necessarily get dressed up. But it's really interesting what you talk about. You brought up two things, and this is a whole other conversation. So we will definitely have to have you guys chat again if you're open to it. But about the editorial process and balancing what is needed to keep the truth. We're not rewriting truth like Trump is what I would say. What we are doing is deciding what piece of truth is inherent to the story. Yeah. So if I took it out, it would actually directly affect the story I'm telling and which is a way that I could finesse it so that to your point, that's it, that jagged edge that's going to snag. Again, your readership isn't just going to be Gen Z or millennials, if at all, I don't know. So the other thing that they would be thinking of, and it depends on the publisher as well, they know who their market is and who they're targeting. And that's all very much analytical brain, but it affects your creative process. I used to think of editing as very like oil and water. The creative was the water and the editing is the oil. And I said, that's why they don't mix. You'd have to shake them really hard. Guess what? You do. You shake them really hard Mm -hmm. when you're going through the structural edit because you need to keep the soul of it Mm -hmm. and fix those things that are like, what's this gaping hole? And you say, oh, it's not a gaping hole. But deciding which battles are worth fighting for. And you're right. It's it's totally an internal process that the writer has to go through. And I'm not going to say it's easy, but I bet it's pretty interesting where you say, wow, and challenging your own expectations of this is my normal and saying, we're now at the stage it's going to be for other people. Which other people do I want to invite into the story mm-hmm. where they don't just slam the book shut because they don't agree that a gay man would marry a woman to survive yeah. in, in his community? Right. I have to say that I've been very lucky because I've had such great editors. And what's been really, really, really irritating is by and large, they've been almost 100% right. Yeah. So that's been, <laughs> that's been really frustrating. Go, damn, <laughs> you're absolutely right. I have to let go of that. That's, mm-hmm. It's not serving the book. I'm incredibly admiring of experienced editors. I think it's just such a gift they bring. But yes, there's only been once or twice I've said, no, no, that's really critical and this is why. And in both cases, I've been lucky because the editors have come back and said, okay, no, I get that. Sorry about that. This has been a challenge for me to think about that. Here's how we might solve the problem. So that's it. And it's solving the problem, I think, is the ultimate goal. But I love that it's still this relationship and a collaboration, right? And you know that your book is a better story for having these extra critical eyes, right? Mm-hmm. And then you choose the one or two things that are like, no, I think that especially as an agent, 
as well, uh, having fielded lots of these calls. And by the way, I have a total endless capacity for the conversations about it, but walking with writers as they go through it, knowing at first it's going to be like, what? There's too much. I can't do it. Or one thing, and this is probably my line in the sand is if they say they don't get the story at all and, and that's it. And it's all very black and white for them. But walking through that discomfort, because it is that it's still part of that process of it went from mine to people say, I love it. We're acquiring it mm-hmm. to, and now you're telling me it doesn't work. I thought you loved it. And then making yourself a better writer for being able to see things in a new way, because what you're inviting readers to do Mm -hmm. in writing the book is to see things potentially in a new way. You've Mm -hmm. gotten the feedback for that. Do you have a little story? Maybe we'll wrap it up on this. Do you have any stories like that, Monique, where you've gotten feedback that at first you were like, no, that's not. (laughs) And then you, you found your way around to why there might be a validity to their critique? Oh, definitely. I think particularly with my first book, because that one was a book where I really struggled with bringing out the conflict enough. And I think that's because I'm more of a conflict, you know, avoidant person. I'm that peacemaker (laughs) and yeah, and I like harmony and I want to be nice and all of that. And the feedback I got initially was that it needed I needed to go harder and to really draw out that conflict. And I'm thinking, my goodness, like there is so much conflict in this story. The the, the people in that book lose their child. They're starting from that point of, you know, having that massive loss in, in their marriage and not being able to communicate anymore. And I'm thinking, what more am I supposed to throw at these people, you know, to give them that's drama, that's conflict. And that was actually the feedback I got from publishers when I submitted it was we love it, but there's not enough drama. And I could not get my head around it. I think it just took me ages to think, what am I supposed to do with this story? If you can just tell me that that's the point. I thought, <laughs> that's well, what every writer wants. Tell me what to do. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do it. Yeah. So and what did you do? Eventually I sort of got challenged to try a few different things uh, with the character and one of them was actually almost to drop it, an entire point of view in that particular book. And mm. I said I it was there, but it didn't have enough reason for being in that book. So I gave that person a massive conflict. And then I went back and I started to look at the character, the male character in that book was almost saintly. He was a very, very nice husband. And so I gave him more flaws and I started to get him to push back against this main character more and I found that that process while it was challenging for me and at first I thought no you're asking way too much like I'm I'm going to have to do too much Um, she even wanted me to give the character a business and I thought no I'm not going to have to rewrite so many chapters just to give her that can't she just work at the business But that was so necessary to the book and that that feedback again it's so hard to hear and you really do think at that point, why am I doing this? I, I could be painting. I could be walking along the beach, <laughs> drinking a glass of wine and doing so many other things. And instead I'm here and I'm crying and yelling and swearing at the computer and you know, acting like a, a two-year-old having a tantrum basically. So I think you have to yeah, you have to work through that process and then really weed out. One of the battles like Denise said that I'm going to die on, that I'm going to say, no, this is staying in as it is. This is important for this person's development and for the story. And I believe it's going to work. 
And which ones do you say, actually, you're right, that's going to jar the, the reader and they're going to either throw the book or they're, you know, they're going to say, nah, this has got boring now, not going to continue. So, yeah, that was that was a really hard process for me to work through. It was a necessary process for me to work through because I think it made revising Wildflower much easier for me. I could see the flaws in those earlier drafts much more clearly and so you know by the time I was ready to go back to that manuscript I kind of knew what I had to start doing Mm. and what you've both shared too it's not a bump free path Denise you've written many books (laughs) and regardless of which ones are published or not and it's really interesting because from my seat I get to see that sometimes it's total lightning strike it's just the right story with the right person on the right day and you continually grow so it doesn't mean oh, then editing Wildflower was seamless. And no, you still would have gone through the process, but now you're expecting some of it and you're getting a little bit clearer about where you know. Internally, we generally sense it. And to your point, I am also conflict averse and... I know that that's how I live in my life. Mm -hmm. And I know that that is not interesting (laughs) to the outside world. It's why they record for reality television. And even if it's unscripted, they watch it and then it's condensed. You know, you take multiple days and then it's, you get about a half an hour, 45 minutes from a week, Mm -hmm. if anything, right? So it's knowing that when we're reading something and we want to be transformed with your story, we have to raise the stakes. So just knowing that, okay, my first draft, my first go is going to be at my maximum conflict. <laughs> and I know when I go back, I'm probably going to have to add some more. And you were saying something before too, that I thought just about being really Zen about things, Mm -hmm. that recognition, that's my wish for all writers is not to be a different writer than you are, but to simply first recognize who you are and how you are. And if you have a goal, I'd prefer to be like that rather than say, I'm going to switch. I used to have a character in a book. I wanted to be her. She was very Zen-like and walked around. That is not me. I'm a talker and I'm high energy, which is my reframe for veering toward anxiety. And that's who I am. So there was no sense in trying to be someone I wasn't. Just like with a writer, if you are a slow writer, you can become faster, but you don't have to bung out a book every six weeks. Mm -hmm. And if you are a binge writer, you don't have to sit down and type out a certain number of words every single day, no matter what, or you're broken. You're not a good writer. It's identifying, as you said, 90% of the time I am good. And then the 10% I feel. In other words, you're writers and you're human. (laughs) And it's recognizing how you go and looking to grow, but not spending a lot of time in judgment about how you've done it before, but always growing. I could speak to the pair of you forever. So hopefully you will, you will be willing to come back on the podcast another time. I would recommend everyone go out and get these books, especially if you are open to being challenged and or you were born in the 60s, the 50s, 60s, 70s, and you like a bit of nostalgia like I do, like just thinking about an avocado colored telephone that has that spiral cord and it's in the kitchen and you have to stretch it to go somewhere, maybe in a cupboard to get some privacy. I love that. I I really long for 
a portion of those days, not too much of it, but just a little portion. But thank you so much for being here today. It was an absolute pleasure. Hopefully we will be talking again soon. Thank you. you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Writers Talking. Join us next time for more writers in conversation as we delve into the writer's process, their passions, and a little bit about their books. Don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast player and follow us on Instagram at writers underscore talking underscore podcast.